Today we are going to be discussing the subject, when I can't heal. The question is, why were many physicians enthusiastic leaders of the eugenics movement at the turn of the 20th century? How does the underlying fear that they held still influence medicine and perhaps even spiritual care today? In this seminar, we will be addressing both what spiritual care is as well as what it is not. And through this process, Lord willing, we'll be empowered to provide Christ-centered spiritual care more confidently, even in the direst of circumstances. Please bow your heads with me once more as we begin. Heavenly Father, God, to you and you alone be all the glory. Lord, thank you for bringing us all here safely. Thank you for this opportunity to learn from you. And Lord, our patients are your children. And so, Father, teach us how you would have us to care for them. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly after the turn of the century, as concerns about poverty and crime and mass immigration began to rise, many physicians and leading politicians, as well as businessmen, all joined hands together in efforts for the betterment of society. This, as two prominent American neurologists at the time, Foster Kennedy of Cornell and William G. Lennox of Harvard, described it, it necessitated, uh, necessitated a reduction of the hopelessly unfit in America. Defective, so-called, and the feeble-minded were sterilized or even euthanized by those who had taken an oath to do no harm. If you can't fix them, discard them early became the new modus operandi. And of course, listening to this today, it is and should be quite startling to us all. Eugenics was not a new concept. It was not a new ideology. You can look back through many ancient customs, such as the Spartans of ancient Greece. When a child was born, the infant would be immediately assessed. And if this newborn precious child had any glimpse of deformity, the child would immediately be killed. Startling as it is. Certainly, I am grateful, and I'm sure you are as well, that eugenics is no longer a political movement. It is no longer something that is being endorsed. However, I do fear that some of the remnants remain. And some of those roots have come a little closer to Adventism than we may desire to know. In fact, a man you may be familiar with by the name of John Harvey Kellogg, a physician, a nutritionist, a health reformer, but his emphasis on a clean diet and exercise was superseded, superseded that of the gospel story. In 1915, the Panama Pacific Expo attracted thousands of attendees and global media attention. 
One of the most popular exhibits was one run by John Harvey Kellogg, known as the Race Betterment Conference. Kellogg congratulated Charles Davenport, a leading eugenicist at the time, on the success of the efforts there. While we see that this occurred not too long ago in medicine, it's also impacted providers today in our efforts in caring for patients, potentially in how we relate to them, and certainly also in spiritual care endeavors. When we see the patient which has as many chronic illnesses as they have complaints, and we scramble for ways to shorten the visit and hopefully refer them out to some other specialist. Or when we avoid the mother in the hallway who is sobbing over her son's poor prognosis, knowing that nothing we can say could fix it, and we find ourselves going the other way. Or perhaps when we find ourselves less invested in the care of a homeless patient, an elderly client, or an individual with mental health concerns. Inwardly, we may be questioning whether their lack of understanding and compliance is truly worth my time. Have you been there before? Have you felt these thoughts, especially during COVID, and post the COVID era, when your patient load has only increased, when burnout is on the rise, when you too are likely feeling the pressures of exhaustion. These feelings, these questions, are they worth it? If I can't fix it, what is my role? As a medical provider, you were always taught to have the answer. What do you say when you don't know? How can we ensure we never slip in the path of Kellogg, but rather maintain a Christ-centered ministry for the most vulnerable among us today? What is it that patients need most? Following World War II and the clear trauma that occurred there, a plethora of studies were conducted. One of these studies compared the experience of children living in London during the Blitz with those who were sent away from their parents to live in the relative safety of the countryside. Interestingly, the study revealed that those who were sent away to the countryside for protection against German bombing raids fared much worse than the children who remained with their parents and endured nights in bomb shelters and frightening images of destroyed buildings and dead people. Children who were separated from their parents after a traumatic event are likely to suffer serious negative long-term effects. When I first read this study, it was surprising to me. Naturally, you would think the safest option, certainly for their mental health, is to send the children away, where they will have no fears, they live in the countryside, they're not going to see 
the destruction of their home. They're not going to see the loss of their loved ones. And yet the opposite was found to be true. What those children needed was mom and dad. What those children needed was that relationship. Even if the bombs are exploding around me, what I need is to know that I am loved, that I am secure in your arms. And that need for connection, that need for attachment, is one we all experience. It's one we all crave. Traumatized humans the book, The Body Keeps Score, continues, says that human beings recover in the context of relationships with families, with loved ones. This could include things like AA meetings, veterans organizations, religious communities, or potentially therapy as well. The role of these relationships is to provide that emotional support, including safety from feelings of shame, feelings of being judged, feelings of abandonment, and to bolster the courage in order to face fear, in order to face the unknown. The impact of trauma is heightened when we're alone, when we're socially dis. Connected. Can you think of a time in our society when we've been socially disconnected? It's quite pertinent at this time. Now certainly, especially in a seminar with uh, medical professionals, I'm not questioning the benefits medically from having that social distancing. But there certainly was an impact emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually for untold thousands of people. As this next slide indicates, the loneliness in older adults has also skyrocketed. So we see changes, and let's see if we can put on the graph here. Uh, thank you. So the changes in loneliness and social context in October of 2018, among the ages of 50 to 80, 34% said that they felt a lack of companionship. Whereas at the onset and early months of COVID, 41% said they now felt that sense of loneliness. 27% in 2018, I feel isolated from others, became 56% in 2020. 28% in 2018, I had frequent social contact, is now 46%, or at least it was in 2020. So in the wake of social distancing due to COVID, there was increased loneliness in older adults, but truly of all ages. There was also an increase in alcohol consumption. As stay-at-home orders began in the United States, Mitigation Strategies for Coronavirus Disease 2019 Transmission, Nielsen reported a 54% increase in national sales of alcohol for the week ending of March 21, 2020, compared with one year before. Online sales increased how much? 262%. 
And the effects of this increase in alcohol consumption are continuing to be researched. Certainly there are not only the physical side effects and negative outcomes, but also the incidence of abuse. Domestic violence has skyrocketed. Furthermore, anxiety and depression, COVID-19 pandemic triggered a 25% increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide. Loneliness, fear of infection, suffering and death for oneself and for one's loved ones, grief after bereavement, financial worries, they've all been cited as stressors leading to anxiety and depression. Among health workers, exhaustion has been a major trigger for suicidal thinking. This same article in the World Health Organization went on to say that there is also an increase in youth and young adults committing self-harm, and certainly suicidal ideation, and tragically, completion. Social isolation, disconnection from others, is quite literally killing society. Certainly, the suffering during this time has only been heightened by continual questions of who we can trust, politically, medically, and even socially. Yeah, in the book, The Body Keeps Score, which if you have not read, I I highly recommend, the author attributes the greatest source of suffering to the lies we tell ourselves. Suffering is attributed to the lies we tell ourselves. Or perhaps more fully, the lies that we have heard from others, which we have embraced as our own. The lies that said, that say, you're worthless. You're not enough. You'll never be enough. You're not good enough. You're not wanted. Nobody cares. These are actually lies and distortions, not only towards ourselves, but also the character of God and true who he truly is. And while we know God to be the cure for suffering, the truth is that many of our patients are suffering due primarily to distorted images of God, which they have received distorted images of God which they have received. I remember reading a quote from Ellen White where she talks about how many individuals that are in what were called in her day insane asylums are there due to a fear of, does anyone remember? Hellfire. Right? This misconception of God that God wants to punish and burn you through all eternity. And so many people were struggling with that anxiety, and, and that anxiety remains. It's, it's gone nowhere. But the challenge is, how do I, how do we as healthcare providers who wish to offer spiritual care support, where do we start with a patient who has such an incredibly distorted picture of who God is? You may have heard of a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. John Bowlby. He studied mental health and homelessness in children in post-war Europe, and he developed what is now known as attachment theory. 
Bowlby came to understand that the lack of a secure relationship, which means that it is sensitive, responsive, and continuous, the lack of a secure relationship with a primary caregiver during infancy and childhood negatively impact physical and mental health outcomes. And when I say negatively impacted, that's, that's quite generous. What he found is these children had failure to, to thrive. They may have been fed, they may have their diaper changed, they may be clean, They had all the necessities that he thought and others thought were required for survival. And yet these children were dying, and yet these children were refusing substance. They said, what's going on? What's wrong? And they began to discover that the caregivers, though, yes, they provided food, did not provide affection, did not provide love, did not hold that child and snuggle them close. And because of that, these children had these avoidant attachment styles. They felt as though, I can't be safe. Nobody cares for me. And they gave up that desire to live. And what Bowlby found is the attachments that we form during those early stages of childhood and infancy, they greatly impact every other relationship we form in life. If we feel secure and wanted and cared for by our primary caregiver, or potentially our parent as a child, then every other relationship we're in, we, we feel that sense of safety. But if I didn't have that experience, if I continually questioned, am I loved? Will I have food? Do they care about me? Then in every other relationship, that will also be your experience. Perhaps someone with an avoidant attachment style. Sometimes they were there, the parent was there, sometimes they weren't. That also affects every other relationship. Now, how does this apply today to spiritual care endeavors? In my past, working as a Bible worker, working as an outreach coordinator, and now as a professional chaplain, I have heard this theme repeated time and time and time again. In fact, a common question now that I often ask my patients when they begin to share about their experience with God, and it might be an experience that terrifies me, one in which they think that God doesn't care or God is punishing them or God is vindictive, and and I will often ask them, what it was like growing up for them. And nine times out of ten, if not ten out of ten, I see the same story repeated. The same picture that they had of their parents or their primary caregiver is now how they view God. The healing of attachments that is needed I'm going I'm to stretch Bowlby's theory a little bit further than he did, and I want to apply it this morning to spirituality. How does attachment theory affect the spirituality of our patients? If a patient has an avoidant attachment style, spiritual attachment style, 
they may approach emotional concerns in a purely logical manner. So you've just given them a difficult diagnosis, and they act like it doesn't affect them. Very cerebral, perhaps. They may state that they don't have a need for God, or they don't need others to help them. I don't want or need God or religion. They may previously have been very involved in their church, in their faith group, in Bible study, and in prayer. But now that they're in a time of crisis, they're saying, I don't want any of it. I don't need it. They're disinterested, or they may be rather aloof, rather disconnected. Perhaps if they had an anxious attachment style in their early upbringing, you're going to see this in how they relate to God as well. Again, especially in times of crisis. They may be verbalizing a fear of abandonment and rejection by God. They may feel desperate to be heard. And for you, especially as their provider, in the place of authority which you hold, to validate them and show them that you care. They may crave that closeness, but they fear the resulting abandonment. So it's continual anxiousness, continual checking in. Am I loved? Are we still okay? Are we okay? Are we okay? And lastly, disorganized spiritual attachment style. These patients or clients often behave in a very unpredictable manner. They may be mirroring the unpredictable nature of their early caregiver. Sometimes they were there, sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were sober, sometimes they were using drugs. They often feel confused, and they may have a negative self-image. Years ago, when I was working with Amazing Facts, I received a phone call, and the individual on the other line said, you know, I've been taking the Bible study course. I'm enjoying it so much, but I have a question. I just don't feel like I can ever be good enough for God. And I remember thinking, oh, good, an easy one, right? I mean, right, no, we aren't. We're sinful, all these things, but, but Jesus, but Jesus. And, and so I started quoting all these, these Bible verses to the caller, and we're going through Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Revelation 3.20. You know, we're just going through this barrage of texts. When the caller repeats his statement, but I just don't feel like I could ever be good enough for God. Weren't you listening? I just gave those Bible verses. And I began to fire off more verses at him. And now we're in Isaiah 59, 2, and John 3, and we're all over the Bible. Only to hear him say once more, yeah, but I just don't feel like I can ever be good enough for God. I remember in that moment pausing and doing the very thing I should have done from the beginning. Praying. And asking the Holy Spirit to give me the words to speak because I had run out of my own. And the Lord impressed me to ask a question then that has since become a question that I frequently ask. And I begin to say, you know, sometimes we carry a harmful picture of God because of the experience we had with our own parents. And the caller immediately interrupted me and said, that makes sense. Yeah, everything else I said did it, but that makes sense. (laughs) 
And he began to share this story of horrific abuse suffered at the hands of his father and his stepmother. It didn't matter how clean his room was. It didn't matter how hard he worked in school. It didn't matter what he did. Um, The beatings would come. And tragically, it took a deadly turn one night and resulted in the death of his little sister. And for all these years, he, as all children do, took the picture from his early caregivers and said, that must be who God is. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how hard I try. I can never be good enough for God. I could give him every Bible verse in the Bible, but not until the Holy Spirit spoke to his heart and showed what was the core distortion. Was he open to considering an alternative view of God? And truly, I believe the one which the Bible beautifully tells. There's one more attachment style that can be experienced, and that is one of a secure spiritual attachment style. This does not mean that the individual does not have any fears about the future. It doesn't mean that they don't have any distress. But an individual with a secure attachment style has a close connection with God. They trust that he is near even if they can't always feel him. They trust that they can openly share their feelings of God, feelings of frustration, feelings of anger, feelings of abandonment, feelings of love and joy. Whatever their feelings may be, they feel as though they can openly share, and he won't reject them. So how do we respond to the patient like the caller, whose distorted picture of religion is keeping them from knowing our true God? How do we respond when there's no easy answers to the questions of faith or hope that our patients pose? Medical professionals, you are trained to know the answer. And this approach to patient care often becomes more prominent in situations where we feel hopeless to fix or cure. If I don't know what to say, I'm going to come up with something. When the pressure is on. But sometimes the only answer your patient needs is silence. Your willingness to sit in the silence with them. For in so doing, we reveal the true picture of God, the picture they earnestly long to see. As a chaplain, uh, I did my residency, clinical pastoral education, at Loma Linda. And I remember this one patient who I will refer to as, as Mr. Johnson. I was rounding one day, and I came to the the room, and I came inside, introduced myself to the patient, Mr. Johnson, in in bed two, and he began to share about his faith. He began to share about how his wife had always been very devout in her religious beliefs, but he had been uninterested. But now, with cancer looming, he was questioning his life, and he wanted to know Can God truly forgive my sins? 
I sat with him by his bedside, a, a man in his, in his 60s, and we began to, to study, to talk, and to pray with one another. At some point in the visit, a woman walked in, who I later learned was his wife, and she looked somewhat flustered. And I was curious if she wasn't happy with me being there or what the situation may be. But as we wrapped up our visit and I walked outside, she ran after me and she said, I have to tell you something. I was in the lobby trying to reach a pastor at our church to come. My husband said he's open to hearing a pastor. This is the first time. And so I was trying to reach someone, but no one was answering. And I was so upset. And I prayed to God and I said, God, he needs someone now. And I walked back up to his hospital bed, and, and there you were. A clear, a clear call and answer from God. And so I began to develop a, a connection relationship with this family. And, and soon thereafter, they called, and they said, can you please come to bedside? Mr. Johnson had just received a very poor prognosis, and he was going to be discharged on hospice care. And as I came into the room, he was lying there in the bed, and he was crying. He was trying not to, but of course his eyes were welling up with tears. And so I, I came beside him, and man, what do you, what do you say? How do you, how do you fix that? How do you make it better? How do you say, oh, it's going to be okay? I stood beside Mr. Johnson And for the next 30 seconds, I did nothing but look him back in the eyes. Gently nodding as my own eyes welled up with tears. And after 30 seconds, which felt like eternity, Mr. Johnson said, would you pray for me? So we gathered, he and his wife and I, and we prayed. His wife had a special request that when he was discharged and at home and the family had gathered, could I also come and be with them in their home? So I received permission to do just that. And about a week or so later, when he was at home in his hospice bed, there in the living room, I arrived at their house one Sabbath morning. And when I walked in, all the other family members were gathered, and they told me that Mr. Johnson had been essentially non-responsive for a few days. They hadn't been able to feed him, give him water. Um, And it certainly looked like the end was imminent. He hadn't opened his eyes as he just lay there. And we gathered around Mr. Johnson as a family, And we began to share stories about um, the man that was so loved, that is so loved, there in the bed. And at the end, after sharing a Bible verse with the family of encouragement, we held hands and also put our hands on Mr. Johnson, and, and we began to pray. And as I'm praying, suddenly Mr. Johnson begins to make this sound that to me sounded like agonal breathing. Now remember, I'm a chaplain. I've taken some course in CPR, but I know that's not what you're supposed to do in this situation. However, they look at me as being from the hospital. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, right? This is not my skill. And so he begins to breathe 
choking. And I opened my eyes during the middle of the prayer in distress when I noticed Mr. Johnson's eyes open as well. And his wife began to yell, his eyes are open, his eyes are open, he knows we're praying, he knows we're here. And Mr. Johnson opened his eyes and he fixed them on on me. And for the remainder of the prayer, he kept his eyes open and so did I as we prayed together. No, there were no tears in those eyes this time. There was only a look of peace. And after we closed the prayer, he closed his eyes um, and to my knowledge did not open them again. In that situation, we may feel as though, well, that's, that's hopeless. How does it matter? But did it matter to that man? Did it matter to that family? Did it matter? James Greek, an influential founder of spiritual care at Loma Linda, once said, it's possible to be healed but not cured. Just as Mr. Johnson and his family found healing in Christ that day. Keys to supporting your patient's spiritual healing. First, be a safe place. Remember that Jesus wept. And yes, we are told that that he wept also for all the hard hearts that he was seeing. But Jesus could not but weep when others were crying. Jesus felt the emotions, the distress, the cares, the worries, and sometimes we we try so hard to protect ourselves from it. We become closed off, come close like Jesus did. Be a safe place. Secondarily, let the patient be your teacher. Don't rehearse what you will say, especially when giving that poor prognosis or a difficult diagnosis As far as, you know, what might their reaction be? What can I say that's the perfect answer that'll fix it? Just be there. Just be present. Be a person of hope. I've always loved 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, and the picture about Jesus coming again in the clouds and comfort one another with these words. But the reason why Paul wrote those words to these Thessalonican believers is because false teachers had come into the church and they had said, you know that Jesus is only going to come for people that are alive, right? So if your child dies, you're never going to see them again. If your grandma dies, that's it. And so the church became more and more distressed at the thought that they would never see their loved ones again. No, no, don't die, don't die. Stay alive until Jesus comes, please. He's coming soon, stay alive. And it was to this group of distressed believers that Paul wrote these words. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven and that he would receive them unto himself. Be a person of hope. Offer that message of peace and consolation. Comfort one another with these words as Paul did to the believers of old. And quite practically, the ABCs of spiritual care. Remember that our own walk with God is often revealed by how we walk with our patients. Do we walk with compassion? 
Do we walk with care and prayerful love? Spiritual care, it's, it's more than simply an act or an intervention. It's more than simply just a synonym for prayer. Spiritual care is a complete modality of consecrated service. Medical Ministry, page 115, puts it this way. Our physicians, and I would include nurses, physical therapists, dentists, etc., our physicians must not rest content with a half-conversion. They need to place their whole trust in Christ. Then the healthy beats of a new heart will change the atmosphere surrounding the soul. Ministry of Healing, page 143, a passage we love so much. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs. He won their confidence. And then he bade them follow me. And sometimes in medical evangelism work, we might feel the pressure to skip the first, and end only at the last. Thinking that spiritual care simply means follow Jesus. But spiritual care is also mingling as one who desires their good. It's coming close to people and saying, hey, I care about you. You're not just another patient on my list. Winning their confidence, ministering to their needs, and then bidding them Follow the Lord that I love. The preceding paragraph from this one in Ministry of Healing, page 143, puts it succinctly this way. The world needs what it needed 1,900 years ago, a revelation of Jesus Christ. A great work of reform is demanded and is only through the grace of Christ and the work of restoration, physical, mental, and spiritual, can be accomplished. We may have all the best techniques, we may know all the theories, but the heart desire, the greatest need of society today is no different than it was 2,000 years ago. What our patients need is a true revelation of the character of God. How can we experience this in our life? The ABCs of spiritual care? Ask the Lord to deepen that conversion in your life each day. Believe that he is able to do this and more in your patients and in your clinic. And see, consecrate your practice to God daily. Make this your very first To me, this is the foundation. This is truly the ABCs of spiritual care. Everything else, how to start those spiritual conversations, how to pray, that builds from here, right? My first step is to consecrate my work to God. Lord, this is your clinic, not mine. Lord, these are your children, not mine. I surrender them to you. Teach me what to say. Teach me how to minister. Give me words I could not think of. May I be led by your Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned 
that I may know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth me morning by morning. He wakeneth my ear to hear as the learned. When I look at over this room, I can't even begin to calculate how many years of education is represented. The Lord God has given you the tongue of the learned. He has given every one of us incredible educational opportunities that many desire to receive. Why has he given you these opportunities? Why has he trained your tongue as the learned? So that you can speak a word to one who is weary. Is that not what the Bible says? He has given, you don't sound convinced yet, I'm still waiting for that. (laughs) He has given you this education, he's given you this training, he has called you to your profession, your specialty, because he's called you to speak a word to one who is weary. As Dr. Edward Livingston Trudeau, the the founder of a sanitarium for the treatment of tuberculosis, often said, to cure sometimes, to relieve often, to comfort always. In addition to our own heart conversion and the use of prayer, which I strongly believe in as an intervention, What other interventions can we utilize to begin spiritual conversations with our patients as well as our staff, with our colleagues in the clinic? I want to share with you, this is just very hands-on, practical, pragmatic tools that I hope we'll be able to bring back to our individual sites and to just begin this conversation with one another as we learn from each other. What are you doing at your clinic? And how can we maybe implement it at our own? So the idea of creating, first, a health needs assessment. Take the pulse of your patients and community. If you are wanting to be actively engaged in your community, first find out what are the needs of my community. And then shape your programs around those needs. We're also going to discuss bridging events, spiritual wholeness screenings, and material or programs that could be provided. A lot of what I'm sharing with you comes from experience working as the chaplain for a federally qualified health center in San Bernardino known as Sachs Clinic. And I know we have um, some physicians from Sachs Clinic and others here as well. And so some of these tools, again, are taken from, from there and other ministries that I've been a part of. So the first is bridging events. What are the strengths within your church? Consider these strengths before you have a bridging event. Now, what is a bridging event? The idea behind a bridging event is how do I take the people at my clinic, the patients that I meet, and how do I connect them with supportive resources, ideally in a church setting, and connecting them with church members as well? So what are the strengths in your church? Is your church really good at... I don't know, um, community health resources. Have they given programs before on depression, anxiety? Um, Do they have a bunch of people that are really uh, excited about health, are part of the F5 crew, right? What are their strengths? Just like God asked Moses when he stood at the burning bush, Moses, what's in your hand? 
Begin there. Is it critical to have a team effort in order to have success? No person is an island, no physician is an island, no dentist is an island. That's why you, we could not operate unless we had a team present with us. And the same is true in these bridging events. There needs to be clear planning that occurs for it to run smoothly, including, of course, the planning committee, advertising greeters, ushers, registration, materials coordinators. Everybody loves food, and everybody comes for food. So I would highly recommend food demonstrations as well. Children's program. Um, one of the things that we've been looking into starting is a bereavement group. And so it's very helpful to have program for the children so they can, the parents can have a safe place to process their loss without the children hearing that, per se. Or children can also process at their own appropriate age level. And remember to work, of course, closely with pastoral staff or outreach coordinator. A critical component of bridging events is that social component. We want them to feel welcomed and cared for in our church. It needs to be a bridge to somewhere. So often we hear that the health ministry, the health work, it's the right arm of the gospel. And it is the right arm of the gospel. It opens doors. But the right arm is not the body. It's part of the body. So work in collaboration. Have it go somewhere. Next, remember that you may simply be planting seeds. It may not be for another 10, 20 years that your patient is open to learning more about God. But they can remember, you know, I remember meeting this one provider who was a kind, godly person. Plant that seed of faith. Next, I want to suggest a spiritual wholeness screening. Now, some of the clinics that I've learned from or partnered with, they actually include this, just like a PHQ-9. They, they give it to every single one of their patients. But other sites don't. That does not mean that you as a provider can't ask these questions on your own to your patients, to your clients. Koenig, who is very much a founder of spiritual care, he says, do, he uses this question, do your religious slash spiritual beliefs provide comfort or are they a source of stress? So that's a question that he asks his patients. Now going back to attachment theory, that's a very important question. Because I might say to that patient, oh yeah, let's pray about it. And if they see God as just this angry, vengeful God, is prayer going to be a source of comfort? It may not. And so I need to understand, are their beliefs helping them, or are they essentially hurting them? I often ask the question, how do you see God during this time? During this time of illness, of trauma, how do you see God during this time? Or what is your source of strength during this time? That's a question you can use to begin the conversation because they might say, oh, you know, my whatever faith they say, or they might say, well, well God is. And that is an open door for a spiritual conversation. Advent Health, I'm very impressed with the spiritual wholeness screening that they utilize, and these are the questions that they ask each patient. Do you have someone that loves you and cares for you? Again, a very general question, but it opens up spiritual conversations. Do you have a source of joy in your life? 
Do you have a sense of peace today? Do you have religious beliefs that influence your medical decisions? If an individual says, no, or I'm not sure, this will trigger a referral to one of Advent Health's spiritual care providers. Another example, and again, I'm wanting to give as many ideas and trigger. You may look at these and you may say, you know, I'm not sure about those, but that question I like. If you come away from this section with just one question you like and you start using that with your patients, praise the Lord. Just find one question that can open that spiritual conversation. This is another example. It's called a Hope Spiritual Wholeness Screening. And this is what it stands for. First is H, sources of hope. So what are things that provide you meaning, comfort, strength, peace, love, and compassion? You may ask questions like, what is there in your life that gives you internal support? What are sources of hope, strength, comfort, and peace? What do you hold on to during difficult times? I ask that question a lot. What sustains you and keeps you going? O in hope stands for organized religion. Are you part of a spiritual or religious community? How important is that for you? What aspects of your religion are helpful and not so helpful to you? P, continuing with hope, personal spirituality practices. Do you have personal spiritual beliefs that are important to you? What are they? What aspects of your spirituality or spiritual practices do you find most helpful to you personally? And then, of course, if they believe in God, consider asking, what type of relationship do you have with God? Again, I'm not assuming. I want to hear their story so I know best how to support them and how, how to bring Jesus into that conversation with them. E, effects on medical care and end-of-life issues. Has being sick or your current situation affected your ability to do the things that usually help you spiritually? Has it affected your relationship with God? Are you worried about any conflicts between your beliefs and your medical situation or care decisions? And would you find it helpful to speak with our chaplain? Or would it be helpful if I prayed with you? Would it be helpful if I prayed with you? You know, that's a question you can always ask. Would it be helpful if I prayed with you? And they might say, no, it's not helpful. Well, that's okay. But they know you care and they know you ask. <laughs> Um, my husband was telling me recently of a, of a story, and a patient, he walks into the room, and the patient says, doctor, you forgot something. He's like looking around, trying to remember what he forgot. He's like, you didn't pray for me. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, and then begins to pray with this patient, because she remembers that he prayed during an earlier visit, and he's gonna, she's going to make sure that that continues to happen in every visit. It makes a difference. And lastly, I just want to share briefly about materials or programs that you can use. One of the things that we did was something called Take Two. And we set it up over Zoom so anybody at our clinic could join in. It was from 8 a.m. to 8.02, and we kept it sharp. Take two, just two minutes out of your day. And the providers would pause and come out to the patient waiting area and we would have a two-minute devotional where a Bible text is read, brief explanation given, brief prayer. And it was a beautiful opportunity for the staff to remember to start their day in that way, but also for the patients that sat there and said, wow, my provider prays? 
But they do this at this clinic, and it was a source of encouragement for them. Hope quotes for staff. I believe I have a picture there. So each week we would send out an email to all the staff. Now, a lot of the staff aren't, aren't Christian or maybe of other faiths, but they still appreciated these hope cards, and they would respond with all of their prayer requests and, and areas of difficulty. So these cards that would be sent out, which are very easy to create, we followed the theme of the clinic, the values of the clinic, the mission of the clinic, and then came up with these ideas. So just an inspirational quote, and then a Bible verse beneath, and then I would just write, if you have any prayer requests, please feel free to let me know. Happy to connect. So those are just a few of the ideas, and there, of course, are more. But what I want to end with is this Bible text in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. It says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight. He who observes the wind does not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. Today I would encourage us, or even more so, Monday morning. I hope you remember this encouragement. Because as you go back to your place of work, You may begin to look at the wind. You may begin to look at the storms, and you may begin to say, yeah, but this won't work here. There's no way that people here will be interested. Yeah, you don't know my population and how secular they are or how strongly, devotedly religious they are in another way, right? He who observes the wind will not reap. Cast your bread to seven, to eight. Cast it wide. For you don't know the way that the God forms a child within a woman. You don't know the way that the God of the universe created the skies and the galaxies. You don't know, right? We're so human. Our views are so small. And God is saying, all I'm asking is for you to quit looking at the wind. Quit looking at the obstacles. And instead say, Lord, here am I, send me. I am willing to share. I'm willing to ask questions. I'm willing to sit in the silence. I'm willing to love and care for your child. God, here am I, send me. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I just thank you so much that we are here because we love you. We are here because you have touched and changed our hearts, Lord. We're here because we want to know you more. And we're here because out of that love that you have put in our hearts, Lord, we want to share that love with everyone else we meet. Lord, so often, especially following COVID, so many people are hurting. There's so much fear. There's so much stress. So God, here we are. And Lord, we may only see the obstacles now, but help us instead to look at the almighty God, the all-powerful God, who knows the hearts of his children and who is more than able 
to set up those divine appointments for us. And so, Father, here we are. We consecrate our hearts and we surrender our work to you. Lord, here we are. Send us is our prayer. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.